Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Welcome back to Leftover. This is Arjun. Uh, joined this week by a very special guest, none other than historian and author Hannah Rose Woods. Uh, Hello, Hannah. Thanks so much for joining. Thank <laughs> yeah, you for really having glad me. That we could, yeah, yeah. Really glad that we could uh, we could make this happen. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, of course. Uh, as I, I mean, in case anyone here listening, you know, statistically, the majority of the people listening are in the UK. But you know, in case anyone's listening not in the UK, uh, and and you're somehow unaware of it, of course, uh, just about um, ten days ago, Queen Elizabeth II celebrated her platinum jubilee, seventy years of being the British head of state since her ascension to the throne in 1952, and uh, all of us living here have had. Uh, I've had to sit through four days, uh, an extended bank holiday of of, of um, various celebrations up and down the country. Uh, I mean, how was how was your Platinum Jubilee uh, weekend, Hannah? Uh, personally, personally for me, very quiet. I did absolutely nothing, <laughs> uh, but it was interesting. I um, so I've moved to like a tiny town uh, in the Nottinghamshire countryside recently. And it was like very interesting to kind of see, you know, how they how they celebrate the Jubilee and the Royal Shires. You know, there were a lot of like little, you know, every single shop had a display, um, mm-hmm. you know, like in the street. There were just like, you know, bollards covered with like knitted covers. Like it was very, <laughs> it was very omnipresent. Um, and yeah. I feel like I kind of just like watched it all unfold like a kind of armchair anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> You're just doing deep cover gonzo journalism, basically. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm, I'm actually intrigued. I mean, because obviously my experience would have been a little bit different, um, especially because I was, I was working throughout the whole weekend in my pub job. Mm. And especially sort of in, in this part of North London, like... I mean, there are some parts of London which are definitely more conservative leading and which are, you know, which will have more sort of blatant and, and you know, ostentatious displays of like yeah. royal pageantry. But like, yeah, while you would still get a few of those houses, they, they'd be by far the exception mm. in, in a place like Walthamstow, for example, where I work. Um, and... Um, you know, I, was four in, days uh, we had... I was in Central, though, a couple of weeks ago, and, like, a lot of Union, union Jacks everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's the thing, you know, that, like, within establishments, I mean, especially at the pub, for example, I mean, we've got a massive beer hall, and, like, they brought in, I think, like, 10 huge Union Jacks. I mean, I'm not, mm. I don't even know how much I'm at liberty to say here without, like, getting fired, but I don't think any of my <laughs> bosses listen to this podcast anyway, so I'm just going to kind of wing it. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, beer halls with huge displays of nationalism generally don't tend to evoke particularly, you know, um, happy memories. Uh, mm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, uh 
the 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 number of union jacks especially in in a place like central london which i guess is is more sort of tailored for an outside um set of eyes let's say you yeah. know for 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 people maybe coming in you know tourists but but also for the press and so on you know this is this is the sort of you know pictures that are going to end up in the newspaper so of course they're going to have to you know really go all out uh, and i mean really like the union jacks had union jacks i mean it was <laughs> really like you could really couldn't couldn't fucking escape it um uh and um yeah, I mean, it, it, like the the total cost of the jubilee celebrations. I, I mean, they were projected at about one billion pounds, I believe, or, mm-hmm. or am I totally off off there? I I think it was it was around that that mark. Um, do you think the uh, do you think the bunting industry kind of offset that with consumer spending? <laughs> Well, let's see. Let's see. I mean, let's see how many uh, people in the employ of big bunting are actually, you know, <laughs> are actually, you know, friends with friends and colleagues with the people in government right now. Uh, because I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if this whole thing was actually just a whole conspiracy by by the whole bunting industry. Um, but, what monarchy? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly my, my monarchy is actually a conspiracy just to prop up the planting industry <laughs> queen elizabeth's got some crazy amounts of shares um but um that's yeah some, something i was quite intrigued to, to hear about because I, uh you know like the turnout like i was like i was sort of alluding to earlier the turnout at the pub over the four days it just wasn't as as much as i was expecting um and even yeah. though like we had a fairly sort of wide array of different things i mean like there was this kind of mass karaoke thing there was um on the second day of the of the jubilee so on the friday we had a mini caribbean carnival and it just like it was it was great don't get me wrong you know like i mean it, it was nice that there was different music playing and mm. it definitely brought a different community obviously you know walthamstow which has uh a, a like a sizable caribbean community uh many of whom have been displaced by the gentrification there in, in recent mm. years as well so it was actually and you know my pub is very much like the sort of face of that gentrification so it was actually really cool to see like a lot of people from that community there as well um but at the same time the idea of like a caribbean carnival uh representing the monarchy i mean it's just yeah. it's kind of a bit bit farcical really isn't it i mean um, especially what given what's going on in the actual caribbean at the moment exactly exactly you know because um I mean, just just the. I mean, I I can't really find a, another word for it than desperation. It feels like, um, with which like this whole jubilee celebration was was, um, mm. was done. I mean, it, it really feels like, uh, and I mean, this is obviously a, a bit of a cliche thing to even say at this point, but 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 really feels like an empire in decline, clinging on to the last vestiges of this. Um, of this sort of glorious past, um, this imagined glorious past, mm. uh, should we say? Um, and that's obviously very relevant to the topic of, of your book, Hannah, and and you know the topic of, of of the discussion today, which is which is of course nostalgia and and the role that it's played not just in popular culture but in politics and and the, just the general way that we have tended to organize our lives, um, especially in recent years. But but as you've pointed out in your book, uh, you know throughout history as well um yeah but... i mean i guess can i just I, I might, this might be a bit of a curveball given that i've written a book on nostalgia 
Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, genuinely open question. Is the Jubilee about nostalgia? Like, like is what we've been talking mm. about mm. nostalgic? Because, like, honestly, in my view, like, nostalgia, you know, is a kind of bittersweet yearning for something yeah. that is felt yeah. to have been yeah. lost. You know, sometimes it can be enjoyable, sometimes yeah. it's more melancholy. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, this is what I kind of meant when I said I was watching all the Jubilee stuff, like, a kind of armchair anthropologist. Because yeah. I just thought, well... No one seems to be quite sure of, like, the mood <laughs> in which to do all this and, like, the tone to take. And, like, I yeah. don't know, do you watch The Crown? I I don't. I've never actually watched it. Uh, so I, I'm guessing so it's, it's relevant. Obviously. I did. Um, and actually, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm, like, I'm not a monarchist by any means, but I genuinely enjoyed the first series. And I think, uh-huh. like... I mean, good television is good television. It's good well. television, but also, Regardless like... Regardless of the politics. <laughs> in, like, an abstract way, like, I could kind of... I could see the appeal of being a monarchist. Uh-huh. In, yeah. Because it's, like, the tone of it is so... Like, it's there's such, like, a tone of high seriousness and solemnity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, like, yeah. important people facing difficult decisions while, like, they're <laughs> repressing their emotions. Yeah. And, you know, they kind of like, I don't know, like the kind of Jacob Rees-Mogg, like cosplay nostalgia of being like very serious, solemn gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. But like that was very much not the tone of the Jubilee uh-huh. celebrations. Like when you kind of like looked at the aesthetics of it, you know, there was a little bit of vintage aesthetics and, you know, pictures of the Queen, you know, in the 50s as like a younger woman, say. But like, actually, I kind of felt like the overwhelming aesthetic was kind of a bit more kind of cartoon and novelty. Like, it was a very distinctive, like, 21st century vibe, I think. Um, like, I don't know, like, someone someone near my flat, um, you know, in my kind of little rural Nottinghamshire town, had got their kid to, like, draw a picture of, like, the Queen is a kind of, like, Peppa Pig figure. Like, <laughs> like, I, feel, like I feel like, but, like, the overwhelming aesthetics was a bit kind of, like, English cartoon novelty like a little bit Paddington Bear a little bit Peppa Pig a little bit like Uh cartoon Corgi and I kind of I just thought like well is this honestly is this nostalgia or is this like a kind of distinctively like modern mode of commemoration like I'm not sure I have I have an answer for that well I mean in in my opinion it's it's both because I think that I mean one of the one of the sort of most notable things about nostalgia, I would say, especially in recent years, is, um, you know, the emergence of a very intentional nostalgia industry. And I really mm. think that that's like, that's the only way to put it. And I mean, um, whether that's sort of sepia filters on Instagram posts or, you know, constant music genre revivals or, um, you know, uh, just just constant pop culture full of references to to pop culture from decades gone by um and so on um and the majority of that is a very willing distortion of the past i mean i, I don't yeah. think it's meant to be and and i think that's kind of what you talk about in your book, book as well it, none of it is actually i think authentic and I, I don't think it's ever meant to be authentic either mm. um but I would say, yeah, I mean, it has, a, it has an appeal precisely because it's not authentic. Exactly, exactly, and 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 I would say that the nostalgia in the case of the Jubilee 
uh, is not so much uh, an like at least the way in the way in which it was presented was not so much in um, the aesthetic sense, even though you know you had some of those uh, grand ceremonies of pomp and circumstance of you know like big marches and military jets mm. flying the red white and blue and so on but um i would say it's more to do with the nostalgia of what the royal family and in, in particular queen elizabeth represents yeah. because she's one of the last remaining lines to the empire before the loss of the colonies yeah. um and Especially at a time like now, you, you know, as we were mentioning earlier, when, uh, you know, in the, the Caribbean's, uh, well, Barbados recently, of course, um, um, uh, removed the, the, the queen as the, the head of state and formally declared themselves a republic. Uh, many other countries in the Caribbean, including Jamaica, where William and Kate recently had a visit, which kind of really seemed to backfire because mm. <laughs> uh, in the wake of it, Jamaica said, no, I think we're going <laughs> to, we're also thinking about becoming a republic. Um and um uh yeah i mean in the face of all of that and and of course you know uh well britain currently undergoing this this you know hyperinflation and uh you know one of the worst standards of living in in post war record uh you know at at this time it it feels very intentional for this really grand display of of uh, a, a manufactured Britishness, you know, yeah. which is definitely drawing on, you know, I mean, even if it's this 21st century idea of Britishness, I mean, it's 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 that sort of Danny Boyle 2012 Olympic ceremony yeah. version of Britain, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's still drawing on this this liberal nostalgia in that case of of an accepting Britain of this kind of um, yeah, yeah. Uh, open 21st century Britain, you know, which is where um, you know anyone can be British technically, and and it's a uh, it's 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 all nice. Uh, even a bear from Peru. Yeah, even a bear from Peru is <laughs> <it's> British. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really, uh, you know, like like I was saying, I mean, just just the fact that the turnout was uh, was quite a bit less than we were expecting. I don't know. Maybe that gave me some sort of renewed faith in. This country's republicanism. I mean, I think that yeah. there's been there's been talk about this on Twitter and, and and whatnot. But I think that there's a lot to be said about how like, yeah, like royalism in this country doesn't really run very deep in the sense of like it's not a very like deep ideological commitment to the idea of like a monarchy that's in that that inherits his power from divine right. You know, like yeah, I, I yeah. think it's it's more cosplay than anything else. I think and, as well, uh, like I think so much of it is just about the Queen specifically. Yeah. Like I really wonder if national attitudes will change quite substantially, you know, in in the years to come. You know, I think there is like like I like I I think this, I guess this is what I was kind of like getting at when I just, you know, asked like, is this nostalgia? Like I kind of feel yeah. Which, you know, I, and I agree with what you said. Um, mm. But I think, you know, there's this sense in which, like, the Queen is a kind of national gran. Like, as you said, she's, yeah, like, yeah, she's yeah. like an elderly person that has, like, borne witness to, you know, a long span of Britain's, like, wartime and then post-war history. She's like a kind of, like, Forrest but, Gump figure. Like, she's going, the, the one person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I, I, I kind of wonder how much that is, you know you know, how much Britain's royalism is about monarchy full stop and, and how much it is just about the Queen. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, and, I, and I mean, if you look at the way in which, um, you know, Charles is generally perceived by the public, I mean, he's very much seen as a joke figure even now. Um, and then the next successor being William. Mm. Um, and the way in which this sort of William and Kate versus Harry and Meghan thing has been, has been pushed by the media and by, yeah. by the sort of royalist media as well. Um, I mean, it's, with, it's, with it's seemingly very much no, to try to... Yeah, with, with seemingly no sense of how that would play out in, like, the Commonwealth or in terms of like, how people <laughs> Exactly, and and then that's that's exactly the kind of thing that's ended up really backfiring mm. on them. Like with the recent trip to Jamaica, for example, which has also allegedly allegedly put further strains on William and Kate's marriage. I mean, this is uh, supposedly this the story was bullshit, but hey, I mean, allegedly, uh, we're not we're not making any definitive <laughs> uh, <laughs> claims on this podcast. But uh, let's just say I wouldn't I wouldn't you know put it put it past them. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, as I was sort of mentioning earlier, I mean, the, 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 this phenomenon of nostalgia becoming, uh, an increasing presence in our lives, mm. um, you know, as, as sort of, as, as being felt particularly since I would say something like 2015, you know, in the run up to, to Brexit. Yeah. Um, but then it feels sort of hyper accelerated almost in the, in the age of coronavirus. And then that was obviously like the first section of your book is kind of dealing with this very contemporary uh, phenomenon of nostalgia. Right. Um, I mean, what would you say has been sort of ha have been the main instigating causes for this to kind of emerge in the way that it has in recent years? Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I like, I first, got the idea for the book kind of amid the debates we were having with imperial nostalgia around Brexit. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this kind of like very widespread narrative that like leavers were uniquely stuck in the past. Um, although actually, you know, I think we've like not really paid enough attention to the nostalgia of, of Remainers as well. But, Absolutely. Um, you know, maybe we can kind of come on to that later. But so that was kind of, 100%. you know, a big... A big factor behind like getting the idea for the book and yeah and then coronavirus happened um and we were all like confined to our homes and i think like nostalgia started to take on a very intensely personal meaning for people mm. you know we were all like deeply nostalgic for like just normality yeah um, <laughs> you know just being able to like see our friends you know etc etc um and then, yeah, and also, you know, we had this kind of parallel narrative, like, oh, COVID is like the Second World War. You know, we just yeah. have to keep calm and carry on. And, you know, they were, it, I kind of found it weird how there, there were these, like, two competing narratives. And one was that invoking the Second World War meant doing fuck all. Yeah. Being like, oh, I'm an elderly... You know, we saw all those headlines and let's say, the Telegraph being like, oh, you know, I'm 84. I survived rationing. I'm not scared of coronavirus. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> But then we also had this kind of competing narrative of like, oh no, the Second World War means that we all have to come together and accept these restrictions uh -huh. in our daily lives and, you know, lock ourselves down and like, don't worry, it's like Vera Lynn said, we'll meet again. So I was like, I was like intensely interested in how 
Second World War nostalgia was being weaponized by like both sides of this political debate over COVID restrictions. Um, and then the statue of Edward Colston was tipped into Bristol Harbour. Um, mm -hmm. So I had this very strange experience of putting together my book proposal about nostalgia in British history. Well, you know, Boris Johnson went on TV and said, oh, we have to stop this like cringing embarrassment about our history. And, you know, Oliver Dowden, you know, former culture secretary was, you know, writing op-eds saying like, we have to stop doing Britain down, you know, damn these historians and heritage workers, you know, um, I would have got away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling historians. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I felt like, I felt, nostalgia was going to be a relevant topic to explore you know you know when i began thinking about the book a few years ago but it, yeah it definitely has ended up being more topical than i could have anticipated in the in the culture wars at the moment yeah definitely um i mean the world war ii thing in particular i think has just been quite quite remarkable mm. i mean we did an episode uh, a few months back about the phenomenon that was Captain Tom Moore, and, yes. um, <laughs> and you mentioned him briefly in your book as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, he sort of represented uh, every side of this this uh, this World War Two nostalgia during COVID, right, Ben? Because I mean, he was a, a World War Two veteran himself. Yeah. Um, he, um, you know, represented the the, the sort of selfless. Uh, service of voluntary you know duty mm. that you know is expected of the good citizen uh especially at a time of national crisis like this you know which was seen in droves um in in the second world war for example and and i mean he you know stood very much as as this um symbol of that you know as he walked laps around his garden yeah. um but i mean you know, while he was kind of given this this almost like national hero status, um, you know, millions of other people around the country w who were actually volunteering in all, you know, various capacities, um, you know, who were nominally, you know, clapped for and who, were, yeah. <laughs> you know, called uh, uh, essential workers and who were called uh, key workers and who were called heroes and whatnot but yeah it's amazing how we uh, we changed that term from unskilled worker to key worker the minute we realized yeah. society could not function without them. <laughs> people that stack supermarket shelves turns out that their job is pretty important <laughs> but uh yeah um yeah i mean that there, there was almost a very sort of uh intentional effort to i mean i don't know how intentional it was i mean but but there was definitely a way in which the 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 the, the role that these people the the mm. average ordinary people uh who were not captain tom moore that was yeah. that was erased right um i mean and... i mean in fairness like we literally couldn't see them <laughs> you know <was> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> the sacrifice that most people yeah. were being asked to make was to just not leave the house when they didn't have to for work etc yeah <laughs> um yeah. you know i think like in fairness we probably did need like a figurehead to give like visual form to that and i do like in a way like i mean like, obviously like we all got so tired with just the endless blitz spirit invocations yeah. in, in the first lockdown especially but you know i do think there is genuinely a way in which it was quite reasonable to draw parallels for sure it, you know like 
you know, I couldn't buy more than like six eggs at a time or whatever. Like it, like it's hard. <laughs> like when that's happening, like it is pretty instinctive to reach for like rationing as the last time, you know, in wartime rationing is the yeah. last time in people's living memories when this happened. Like I think in a lot of ways, comparisons with the Second World War made sense, which is, you know, precisely why Captain Tom had that like immediate aesthetic and emotional appeal. But I think that in some ways, like, that was part of the problem. And it ended up both obscuring the realities of the Second World War and, like, what it was actually yeah. like to live in wartime at the same yeah. time as we were disregarding people's, like, real and genuine sacrifices yeah. um, in the present. And, yeah, we've, you know, yeah. we've certainly kind of, it seems like, forgotten this narrative that, like, NHS workers are heroes and obviously like the right-wing press has gone straight back to like criticizing nhs waiting times with like no sense of like how desperately underfunded and overworked everyone is yeah exactly and i mean um i i highlighted a, a quote from from your book as well which i think is uh um I think you, yeah, you're right. It, it's a, it's a powerful, powerfully strange experience, both to inhabit a world that is suddenly terrifyingly out of control in which people are dying, and also to find that day to day moments can still at find feel, uh, still at times feel shockingly mundane. Um, and I think that that is one of those things that, that that we constantly had to contend with. I mean, like the idea that the world around us is changing mm. in a way that it, 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 you know, irreversibly changing, really, you know, and yeah. Um, and, and we all and, and we need stories like we all like as humans like we all need stories and narratives that make sense of that exactly of what's happening and where we where we fit within that um but you know like as a historian i also want to come along and be like yeah no we like we need that but we also have to have like a kind of skeptical like inquiring perspective on the ways in which we ourselves are using these narratives um, you know, we, yeah, need to, and, we need to and, kind of balance it with like actual reality. Exactly, and, and and also understanding the way in which these narratives are open to exploitation, weaponization yeah, by absolutely. you know various various political agendas, and that's something that's very much happened, in, especially yeah. in recent years. Uh, and I mean, um, sort of what you were mentioning about Brexit being this point where the, this, you know, it, it began this discussion about imperial nostalgia in a way that I guess it hadn't uh, in, in quite some time. Mm. Um, and, and this idea of British ex exceptionalism, which was born of a very willing misinterpretation of history. Um, and I wouldn't even necessarily say a misinterpretation of history. I mean, it's, it's a, a very selective teaching of history, which has happened in this country to obscure the crimes yeah. of its colonial past. Yeah. And, and, um, and I mean, that applies to both the average citizen and also to the people that rule the country. I mean, that's the mm. history that they were taught. Yeah, absolutely. Is that, is, is that, is that Britain was this great power? I mean, like, and, and these sort of Eton schoolboy types, you know, who run the country. I mean, of course, that's the vision of Britain that they're, that they're going to have. Mm. And, and that therefore, any idea that runs counter to that is going to be seen as... As, as an know, existential threat. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, so sorry, you, you were going to say something. Yeah, no, I was just going to add as well, you know, it like it literally determines who is allowed to be British now. Yeah. Like there is yeah. a compulsory yeah. history questionnaire on the UK citizenship test. And, yeah. 
you know, hundreds and hundreds of academic historians signed an open letter a couple of years ago pointing out how just genuinely incorrect a lot of the framing of British history was, you know, in ways that consistently, you know, bigged up Britain, ignored the contributions of other countries to the very things that were being celebrated, you know, consciously downplayed um, slavery as part of the story of Britain, um, you know, kind of et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, like, I think it's just a great example of of how clearly, you know, a vision of history is being used to kind of create a false political consensus. Yeah, I mean, I did the Life in the UK test uh, in 2019. And, uh, oh, yeah, gosh, I mean, it what, was, how it was... was that? <laughs> <laughs> was, I mean, it was just stunning, really. I mean, I was just doing the sort of mock tests online in the in the lead up to it, and uh, yeah, I mean, just some of the questions. Uh, I um, I let me see if I can actually pull this up. This is slightly sort of off script, but let me yeah. just see because I'm I'm pretty sure I I still actually um. Because I like this is back when I had like basically no followers on Twitter mm. at, at all. But I I I, I posted uh, some screenshots from some of these mock tests. They were pretty incredible. I love it whenever uh, you see historians like on Twitter just like posting a screenshot and being like, I don't know how to answer this as an academic historian. Like so odd is the framing. And then it turns out someone pointed out the other day that there's like there's a like a kind of disclaimer in the handbook being like. Oh, there are there are like lots of points where it's been like you know we've been alerted to the fact that like the information we're giving like isn't entirely accurate. Um, but like in those cases, if in doubt, just provide the official version of the answer. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. How That's more the thing. obvious I mean... could you get? <laughs> it's pretty on the nose at that. I point, know, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I mean, there's there's a question here, for example. Rudyard Kipling reflected the idea that the British Empire was a force for good, false or true. How do you even answer that? I mean, what are you supposed to answer there? Are you, uh, are you, are you uh, supposed to, is this supposed to be some sort of, uh, you know, judgment on Rudyard Kipling? <laughs> or is this like a, a judgment on, on the British Empire, whether it was a force for good or not? Yeah. I mean, and, and it's... <laughs> I am. Um, there was a uh, an article in History Today um, by Joanne Paul, who's a, a history lecturer, talking about her experience of you know attempting to answer some of these questions. And she she spoke to a friend who said that they just didn't put any prep whatsoever, and they just went in with the attitude that they would tick the box of whatever they kind of felt would make Britain look yeah. best. And yet yeah. they passed with flying colours. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's kind of what you what you have to do. I mean, it's just a, it's it's a test in the same way that like, it's a certificate that you sort of give to yourself and then pat yourself on the back mm -hmm. for it. Basically, you know, uh, there's there's one question here, which is the Commonwealth is an association of countries that support each other and work towards shared goals in democracy and development. True or false? Uh, I just pressed yeah. false just to see what it would say, because I know that they're asking for true, obviously, yeah. but I pressed false. Um, and it says, incorrect. The Commonwealth is an association of, uh, of countries that support each other and work towards shared goals in democracy and development. Most member states were once part of the British Empire, and although a few countries were not, have also joined. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, Genuinely, uh, there's like there's almost like the a kind I mean, of like enforcement of shallowness <laughs> to these yeah, yeah, questions. Yeah, exactly. 
Like, you know, exactly. like independent thinking is like actively discouraged and would threaten your citizenship. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but but of course it's the it's the Marxist historians who want to brainwash everyone. Um uh but uh you know that that's we had <laughs> um um Elena Yanega on the podcast yeah. a, a few weeks ago, and uh, she was also talking. About, I mean, we we talked with her as well about the the citizenship test, and she was also talking about like especially some of the questions that they have about medieval history, for example, just mm. just blatantly wrong. Mm. <laughs> just the the, the, the answers that, that 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 are the actual the, the the correct answers on the test is just just plainly just false um and yeah like you were saying i guess yeah many historians have you know spoken up about this and then uh said that that it's not true but but of course they're they're probably marxist activists and they you know you can't really listen to them um um but yeah i mean um that that is an interesting point in in and of itself as well right the just the idea of how history is this kind of battleground almost yeah. a, a very hotly contested battleground especially at the moment especially post the toppling of the colston statue in, in bristol um and you know at the time obviously this was in in the context of the blm protests that were happening mm-hmm. after the murder of george floyd in, in in minneapolis and um yeah i mean this this kind of across both sides of the Atlantic and in many other parts of the world as well. I think this prompted a, a, a sort of much more mainstream and widespread discussion about the way in which the present structures of racism, institutional racism, are a legacy of colonialism and slavery yeah. in particular. Uh, and that's obviously a demand that's been made by anti-racist activists, in at least in the UK, for, for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and um this like you were saying you know is seen as a sort of existential affront to this um to at least the the, the current uh conservative mm. um nation building project uh which i mean i think it's like i think it's curious in a way because you know i really when i was writing the first chapter of my book that deals with this time period i really sat down and i kind of thought does Boris Johnson, like, do the current cabinet really believe in this? Because, mm. like, we like we kind of, like, it's, we kind of say axiomatically, like, oh, the culture wars are, like, you know, a distraction manufactured by politicians to kind of deflect attention yeah. from, like, substantial policy yeah. failures. Like, we kind uh-huh. of, ne- like, which I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong. Like, clearly, <laughs> there is a huge element sure. of that. But also, like, as you say, you know, we have a lot of, old Etonians in the cabinet and running the country who have like been very sincerely taught from a young age yeah. that, yeah. you know, they are the leaders of a great and powerful nation that wants, you know, ruled a quarter of the world, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the kind of burden of, you know, that greatness lies on their shoulders. You know, Civilizing th- savages and so on. Yeah. And I think, but I think like this is kind of, I think it's a real problem because like nostalgia is just such an like a key universal human impulse and not not even necessarily a bad one um but like it's something we all need so like sociologists and psychologists say we'll we'll talk about how important nostalgia is as a positive emotion that you know when we like anchor ourselves in you know stories of who we are and where we've come from that kind of make us feel like connected to people and like rooted in the vision of home like that's really good for our mental health it also you know kind of paradoxically makes people more ready to face the future and kind of jump into the unknown because as they see it they have you know a kind of stable base that they're already anchored in and you know especially in the middle of covid 
such a time of uncertainty and change, you know, that's that became more important than ever. But then I think it was just like your heart sinks when you see that really like important human impulse being mapped onto like nostalgia for the nation. This sense yeah. that, you know, like it's it, like it's a, you know that it's it would be an existential threat to you personally to have to find out that it turns out history is far more complex than we were like first told as children. Yeah, and I think yeah. so much of this is like rooted in you know I think a lot of the media is really encouraging people to defend to identify with and defend a vision of history that they kind of they first learn at a really young age. Um, you know, almost this kind of like ladybook story, British history, mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. you know, fantastic, like Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh going out and exploring, mm-hmm. you know, kind of... Britain's swashbuckling, seafaring yeah. spirit. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's just this kind of famous names and faces and like, yeah. you know, heroic, inspiring narratives. Um, I don't, it's kind of hard to know as a historian what to do with that because I don't want to be, mm-hmm. I don't want to come along to someone that's really psychologically and emotionally identified with that narrative <laughs> and then just be a kind of like snarky debunker being like yeah well like you know francis drake was a dick you know it's really <laughs> hard like it's really hard to disentangle like you know sure. of course we all feel nostalgia and and i'm not saying anyone's like stupid for feeling it but like my god we have to disentangle this from like a storybook version of british history yeah yeah i mean i think that the nostalgia that people feel especially currently um and at, at the sort of one of the things that sort of exp- that, that explains this sort of ubiquitous presence in our lives at the moment is just the rate of change of this technologically driven capitalism mm. and the rate at which uh, you know um just the just the way that we structure and organize even just the everyday aspects of our lives are, are changed you know and mm. whether that's to do with the way we eat and and shop to the way that we um you know study meet new people etc et the way that, that, that we converse with one another uh you know um trends you know within the internet world you know trends appear and disappear within hours sometimes let alone mm. you know days or weeks and and it's very difficult i think for us as as human beings to kind of keep up with that that rate of change right yeah that uh, is complete i mean i was just gonna just yeah no, no, jump sure. in with my historian on here that is absolutely true it's also absolutely true that that has been the case for a very very long time Sure. Like, you know, even if the pace of change was, was, you know, slower in the past, it was still unprecedentedly rapid, sure. you know, sure, centuries sure, ago. Sure, sure. You know, I think uh, it's I think it's reassuring in a way that, you know. Yeah, and I mean, that, that is obviously, yeah, and that, that is, of course, I mean, one of the sort of uh, key uh, elements of your book is, is, of course, looking at the way in which societies throughout history have felt this, this, rate of change and uh, this this pace of change which they feel sort of unable to keep up with and as a result of have looked to the past to find some sense of solace Mm. and 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 um you know stability almost um but yeah i mean i i would say something that sort of makes this particular era also unique in that sense is the fact that we also have access to every point in history at any given moment, you know, at our fingertips, right? You know, so like um, we have an idea uh, at least, and and that 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 might be 
a, a very constructed and, and imagined idea, but but we have an idea of what different parts of different points in history looked like. Mm. Um, in, you know, in a in a way that, that that people in the past haven't necessarily had, uh, and as a result, you know, we have this sort of yeah, this almost sort of like dreamlike uh, you know construction of this of this history in which all of these things are sort of flattened into one. Yeah, uh, and as a result, that's why it's also also sometimes quite difficult like everything feels like a callback to something yeah. but you can't quite tell what you know yes. <laughs> that's the thing you know like we're, we're, we're reliving something but but what is it exactly you know is this the 30s you know are we undergoing like the rise of fascism again or is this the 80s you know or is this the, the is this the, is this y2k again you know with the kids with their yeah. big big jeans and and uh yeah. and, and 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 the revival of pop punk you know i mean it's it's yeah, kind of it's kind of difficult into, to, to, um, <laughs> i walked into an urban outfitters recently yeah which like it's not a shop I've been to for quite a few years yeah and like my god I was walking around just like trying to put a name to this aesthetic and I was like okay yeah. it's like it's the late 90s draw that, but like, like it's looking yeah. back to a 90s that was drawing on the 70s yeah, yeah and I was yeah, this yeah. like incredibly strange mishmash of like 70s knitwear with like like as 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 reimagined by kickers looking back to their own back catalogue yeah it's incredible. Like I don't like. What do you call that? Is that is it like? Is it the uncanny instead of nostalgia? If we're if we're kind of just like flattening time and mashing it all together, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No. Definitely. And and I mean, um, like just just the way in which um, you know pop culture itself almost uh, is is also kind of at this point at least. You know, like the big budget, you know, big industry sort of flagship franchises and such. Um, you know, they've fully run out of ideas and, and they're constantly just like regurgitating the same, you know, uh, like now there's going to be a, a Barbie origin story movie, you know, which is going to be yeah, all dark. Is, and it, is it Greta like, Gerwig? Yeah, yeah Greta Gerwig yeah. is directing like... <laughs> I with, like Margot, I with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, who are like both really good actors. I like, cannot conceive and... <laughs> of what that's going to be like. <laughs> and 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 um, you know, like the the new Spider Man, which I haven't seen, but but from what I understand, it's kind of like bringing the 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 the, the previous Spider Man, the Spider Men, Spiders Men. I, I I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, um, you know, Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire back into the new one with Tom Holland and and. And, oh, um, you, you know, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's so it's it's kind of like um, cannibalizing itself almost, yeah. you know, like in, in this in this kind of uh, drive for nostalgia, essentially. Right. Because, I mean, but but by this point, the first Spider-Man movies and I would say like, you know, like the first like X-Men and the first Spider-Man movies were like the first like big step by Hollywood into this comic book. Mm superhero world that is now just fully saturated the entire market um but like that like there there is a nostalgia for that now you know yeah. and uh it's it's this um and, and and there's almost like a very sort of enforced 20 year cycle that this nostalgia thing seems to this nostalgia industry seems to be sort of operating on uh, and it it seemed almost like inevitable that that it would happen now that that, that this sort of Y2K revival would be happening right now right which is why we've had the yeah. the, the matrix the, the matrix sequel and and the revival of pop punk and the big jeans and and and, and whatnot 
Yeah, it's interesting though, because like clearly so much of this is about nostalgia. Mm. And you know, like certainly from like a financial point of view, like of course, like movie makers know that like if they can hit that sweet spot of like kids going to see it like it's new, but also like their parents' generation going to see it and being like, oh, it's just like the old days, you know, clearly that's always going to be a money spinner. But I think as well. Yeah, the parents are going to take their kids into the movies. (laughs) Yeah, so so, like so much of it is like, you know, like it has an appeal both for people who have that in their lived experience precisely because they have it in their lived experience, but it also appeals to people who don't precisely because they haven't experienced it before. Sure. I I like, it's, 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 I don't know what to make of that. Like, it's, it's like you can't lose. that that's the thing. I mean, oftentimes this nostalgia is to a time which you know was never actually experienced. Whether that's a sort of actual, whether that's like an imagined childhood, or sometimes it's even from a time before, you know, we were even born. Right? I mean, yeah. we're nostalgic for a time which we never actually lived through. For example, like when the whole vaporwave thing started, like really popping off, maybe about um, six, seven years ago, um, and like that's this aesthetic which is like this really like post-internet meta aesthetic uh Mm. which is uh sort of steeped in nostalgia for like the early computer era and um and it it kind of like takes you know music from commercials and and so on and kind of ironically reappropriates them and slows them down and plays it on on top of a backdrop of like a, an empty shopping mall or something like that you know like and, and yeah. that's like that's the thing and, and and it's part like the visuals are part of the 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 package as well you know like it's it's not just the music there uh and you know you'd have kids you know who were born in like let's say 99 or 2000 who are listening to the stuff like imagining a 90s which they never experienced yeah. themselves but um they're sort of nostalgic for and they're they're, they're longing for because yeah, I, I don't know. It, 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 there, there's comfort, I guess, in the idea of, yeah, like you mentioned, um, you're looking back to a time where you sort of know how things turned out, yeah. you know, and that, that, that. But also, um, like, it's quite, like, in some ways, like, that is quite a progressive nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's kind of looking back to a time and idealising a time when, like, the possibilities of digital technology kind of still held out for, like, Sure. That they would have like utopian ends, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, like it, like it, it's kind of both forwards and backwards looking. Like it's looking back yeah, to no, a definitely. time I mean, when the future was better. Oh no, ab- absolutely, and it's uh, sort of retro, retro positivism. I, I like mm. uh, retro future pos- nice. uh, positivism or something like that. I don't, I don't know, but like no, it, it's like vaporwave is something I, I find fascinating personally, and I, like. Um, and and the sort of the the whole culture around it and like I guess it's not as sort of relevant anymore but but a lot of the the music and and art that kind of came up out of it um, you know uh, is 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 definitely very interesting mm. to me uh, and, um, and 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 also um, I mean this um, like it also leads to like this this sort of cannibalization of culture also leads to you know like really horrendous things like Ready Player One as well. And, uh, you know, like, like 
cult- pop culture products which are entirely reliant on their references to yeah. pop culture products and, and and it seems like just so cynical at that point and i mean even if it is even if it does have some sort of basis in like genuine authentic nostalgia for a childhood uh you know of of, of you know things that were experienced during childhood yeah. uh, you know it, it seems so sort of cynically deployed at that point i mean it's it's like the very worst elements of nerd culture um and yeah, uh, yeah like at, at that point i mean it's 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 difficult to kind of like look at that positively um but yeah i like think it's say, i it think is, it's it interesting though to like to, i think it's interesting to think about like how just how long that has been going on for um mm-hmm. so like i did my um I did my master's dissertation on um, like Victorian and Edwardian advertising. Like I looked at the ways in which like around the turn of the 20th century, like it, it kind of seemed like advertisers had like just started to cotton on to the idea that they could like manipulate people's emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously like that is like, it's a time before there's like any regulation of like the wild claims you could make. So that like advertisers yeah. are really having this like insane field day over how like emotionally manipulative they could be. And like the yeah. thing they reach for is like nostalgia, um, you know, like, you know, you could buy like, you know, Edwardian like nerve pills that would kind of promise to transport you back to like a pastoral medieval vision of Britain, like before those horrible, <laughs> you know, polluting factories came along and before the pace yeah. of life got overwhelming. And like, obviously, yeah. like the extremely cynical irony is that like, this is advertising for like mass produced products, which are like have instigated and are now perpetuating like the very like industrial capitalist reality they're offering like relief from to their paying customers. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and um, I think, I think, yeah, like it's, it's very understandable, obviously why that is appealing, you know, especially in the face of um, yeah, very turbulent social change um but i mean kind of coming back to something that that we mentioned earlier about the way in which this this very potent feeling of nostalgia can be capitalized on and, and mm-hmm. weaponized is uh you know i mean fascism as a as a a political ideology has always employed a a, a certain kind of nostalgia um a very, you know, constructed, imagined past, yeah. and and the glories of which have been robbed by mater- by modernity, um, but 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 it's about trying to reclaim that past, and 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 that's yeah. one of the the few common themes that runs through runs through almost every single iteration of fascism, at least as as um, as Umberto Eco writes yeah. about. Um, and I think uh, probably nationalism as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm I like I'm, I I I don't think I could think of an example like within Britain across time or globally um, where like the essence of national identity hasn't in some way been located in elements of an idealized past. Yeah. Um, like the like the nations people imagine have origin stories that reach back to like kind of misty mythic origins like like no one like it seems to me that like no one has ever been like no one's ever woken up in the present and been like oh this is like the the quintessentially national day that we're in we've never been more national than we are right now (laughs) yeah i mean i guess 
the 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 question of nationalism it's an interesting one as well right because it's uh on the one hand it is especially in the broadly in the, in the, in, the, in the modern day context it's very much seen as a reactionary force and it's seen as something that is um you know steeped in well conservative politics veering towards fascism um particularly in industrialized countries uh, in recent years where we've seen a rise of this kind of hyper-nationalism mm. um, and a lot of it is based on this very willing, obs- uh, you know, obscuring of history like we were talking about earlier, whether it's, uh, you know, um, slavery or colonialism or, or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I mean, nationalism, at least in its inception from the Enlightenment, was seen as a as a progressive force, right? You know, it was seen mm. as something to kind of unite um a people uh mm. as a people rather than as subjects of, mm. of of a divinely ordained monarch uh and um obviously in order to kind of find that that unity you have to like look back at uh stories from the past and you have to kind of construct a history in order to kind of give that some level of legitimacy i guess but um but but regardless i mean like that force of nationalism and um was 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 more and had more in common with the kind of nationalism that we saw in uh, anti-colonial um, uprisings as well. Yeah. Um, and so nationalism is it's it's a bit of a double-edged sword as well, right? Because I mean, on the one hand, we generally tend to think of nationalism, at least in in, in the present context, mm-hmm. as this yeah reactionary force. But um, you know, in the um, uh, struggles against empire, uh, nationalism also played a. Um, a a really important role yeah that. completely um, and like and within britain it's kind of entwined with like the history of democracy um mm-hmm. you know like we have this very dominant narrative now that people that are generally interested in like popular history in a very kind of nationalist kind of britain centric way that they're kind of yeah. nostalgic stuck in the past that it's like a conservative emotion that it makes you kind of biddable <laughs> by elite, like, you know, kind of like elites have kind of, you know, encouraged this, this narrative that keeps people in their place. But like, like, that could not be have been more different in, you know, the beginning of the Victorian era, when there was this huge popular history boom. And at first, like elites were really, like, suspicious of this and frightened about this. They were like, well, you know, there was this view that like, well, previously, like, you know, history was just this thing that, you know, gentlemen, participated in and therefore kind of had control of the narrative yeah. and and if you know if ordinary men and women are mm. you know interested in their nation's history you know does this mean they're going to seize control of the national narrative um yeah. and you know like say chartists um when they were campaigning for like men's right to political participation in the middle of the 19th century they yeah. would very consciously kind of weaponize an alternative vision of, of England's national history and you know they mm-hmm. kind of they'd explicitly hark back to this like merry England where you know supposedly kind of peasants were well fed you know they had independence yeah. they had right to common land um and yeah that was a way that they could could kind of safely make make demands for change by being like no no we're not we're not kind of radicals or revolutionaries like we're we're traditionalists you know we're just kind of restoring the ideal past no uh, yeah definitely and, and I think that um as you mentioned in the book as well i mean uh, throughout history the way that that we've sort of uh been nostalgic 
towards the past and in which societies have been nostalgic towards the past, I think says more about them than it does about the yeah. past, right? I mean, it, it says more about the anxieties and the, um, and the fears uh, of, of the contemporary society yeah. of, of the time. Yeah, um, every age and, has always been rewriting history, you know, in light of their own experiences. It, exactly and, and i mean that's that's why i think this this question of nostalgia does ultimately come down to a question of history and and, and of the the contested nature of history and how we remember right collectively mm. um and how intertwined the personal uh remembrance and the collective remembrance actually are yeah um you know um something interesting that you mentioned for example like um margaret thatcher you know was uh constantly uh, invoking this idea of the Victorian values, yeah. which was shorthand for this kind of hyper-individualistic society, which was actually a, a pretty contemporary idea of the time, but it was being, um, you know, um, mapped onto this idea of Victorian values. Um, and that that she kind of inherited that from her grandmother, right? Yeah, <laughs> from, I mean... From, from, from her own upbringing. And yeah. So how, how much of this, 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 these kind of like national pathologies are actually end up becoming, you know, are, are born out of these very personal, um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ideas of memory and history as well, right? Yeah. Once upon a time, things used to be simpler. <laughs> I think I think yeah. is the uh, <laughs> the kind of meta narrative there. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like you know, a, a lot of journalists at the time in the in the eighties, like definitely a lot of historians at the time, I said, "Well, what does what you're talking about have to do with Victor? Like, what what's Victorian about these values?" <laughs> yeah. um, and she, because it was basically like a kind of a term. She used the term in a kind of way to be like interchangeable with traditional. You yeah, know, like yeah. you know. At the time when, like, there were riots in Brixton and Toxteth, Victorian values were respecting authority and supporting the police. Uh -huh. You know, if it, if she was talking about, you know, unemployment, it was, you know, work hard and, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. Um, but, I, like, a journalist um, once asked her what she meant by Victorian values, and she said, oh, I was raised by a Victorian grandmother. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she basically... I, th I think there is a real element there by which she kind of looked back to what she was taught in her childhood and rather than thinking, ah, that's what the world looked like to me as a child, she was like, well, that's what the world looked like then <laughs> at the time. Um, but I, th I think this is yeah. so common. Like I saw, yeah, 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 it was exactly. maybe about a year ago now, I saw like Lawrence, I think it was, did Lawrence Fox stand for London Mayor or if I hallucinated yeah. that? No, 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 he did. He oh, did. he did. Um, so yeah, so it must have been an article where he was like announcing that. But he, it was just incredible the extent to which this was just like his psychodrama. It was like, he was like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, when I yeah, was yeah, a really yeah, exactly. young kid at school, I was taught that Britain was like literally the best at everything. You know, I was taught these incredibly exciting stories about like spitfires in the sky shooting down Nazis. And, you know, he was creating this like incredibly like romanticized picture of like a schoolboy learning about history. And then his like the kind of like dramatic foil of this article. And he's like, but now I'm being told that like it's not you know, I'm being told that I shouldn't believe that and it's terrible. Um, and you kind of just really got the sense that, like, what he'd learned about British history as a kid has become, like, his romantic philosophy for living. <laughs> <laughs>
No, definitely. I mean, like this, that this entire contingent of, um, of of, you know, British politics, you know, which which panders to, essentially those Facebook groups, which are like, remember when the bin men were hard. Uh, oh gosh, like, the bin you know, discourse. Like that, that, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's essentially what it comes down to, right? I mean, this whole new strain of like reactionary anti woke politics, mm. um, you know, I mean, which is on the one hand, and which is also like you know, really kind of um, went into turbo mode during the Corbyn years when people, mm. everyone sort of lost their minds. Um, where, you know, like on the one hand, young people have never had it so easy uh, and they're just, the only reason they can't get on the housing market is because they spend too much time, yeah. uh, is because they spend too much on uh, Netflix and avocado on toast uh, and um, they should stop complaining and they're so sensitive and uh you know like they, they they have a thousand different genders and you know like what what even is all of this uh you know we we <laughs> yeah. had it we had it hard back then you know we, we we're like we're real men it never did we, us any harm it certainly didn't turn us into bitter twisted sadistic yeah. reactionaries <laughs> you know <laughs> and um yeah like i mean it's 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 this kind of you know, Corbyn is going to take us back to the 70s. We can't, you know, uh, let that happen. But at the same time, the 70s were great because yeah. that's when we came up and everyone had respect and, and everyone uh, respected yeah. the bin men. You know? I think it's, so. it, I, it's truly, I mean, it's like, how many times do these things have to happen for us to stop being surprised by them? But like, it's truly amazing how the very same people that were like Corbyn would take Britain back to the 70s, you know, this dreadful decade yeah. when the lights yeah. went out, with the winter yeah. discontent, etc., etc. And now we're actually facing quite a <laughs> literally 70s-esque cost of living crisis. They're saying, wasn't it amazing? We didn't complain when the lights went out and there was no central it's, heating it's and there was ice on the inside of the windows. Like, get a life. That was great. You know, I just think like, which one is it? Or, or like, well, I mean, the, clearly, the, 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 is, clearly, the point is to be like, we're authentic. You didn't live then. Shut the fuck up. But it just—it's it, incredible that people aren't like reflecting themselves on like, oh, wasn't I saying that was terrible a few years ago? Well, I mean, I think we've we've all pretty much come to the understanding that the average British journalist has the memory of a goldfish, <laughs> uh, or at least it's a very willing, you know, yeah. um, short-term amnesia. But um, yeah, I mean. It's it's part of the kayfabe, right? You know, it's part of the performance of you know of the, like the job that they have to do, uh, and uh, unless you're someone like Dan Hodges, who will just say the quiet part out loud, you know, <laughs> when uh, confronted with the idea, you know, when he when he was talking about oh let's welcome back to the seventies, just on Twitter just a few days ago, uh, you know, lights are going out, hyperinflation, bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. Um, and. Uh, when someone pointed out that, like, I mean, that's pretty much exactly what he campaigned for, mm. uh, he said, well, still, I'd still rather take this over Corbyn. Mm. <laughs> and uh, that kind of, like, that, that is kind of saying the quiet part out loud, right? Because it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's not about going back to the 70s or not. I mean, the 70s also had much better a much stronger welfare state and much better yeah. public infrastructure that was still well, uh, nationalised and, and so on. And, and so there are things about the 70s which are worth emulating, for sure. Yeah. about the 70s And, you know, late 70s polls consistently had yeah. British people saying they were incredibly content. 
you know, explicitly yeah. <laughs> saying they did not care that standards of living were a little bit higher in, like, for example, like West Germany or America. Um, you know, Britain, you know, was just measurably by, you know, lots of quantitative polls and surveys quite happy, it turns economic out, at the end of the 70s. Economic inequality was, like, historically low as well at that point. And, yeah, and, never, never been more say. economically equal before or since than, I think, 1978. Yeah, and I mean, that's something, I mean, since Thatcher came into power, it's something that has only widened. Wages have stagnated and, you know, the cost, cost of living has only yeah. gone up, while the, you know, the top 1% have, you know, just vastly amassed their wealth. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean... Uh, but I think, like I think this... can I just pick up on that? Sure. Because I think, like, I think it takes us to, like, an interesting point just kind of visibly the Dan Hodges, like, I'd still rather this 70s dystopia than the Corbyn 70s dystopia kind of thing. That, like, I think it does point us towards the fact that like, these people's nostalgia is, is only actually skin deep. Yeah. It, it's more about a kind of imaginative slash aesthetic vision that's actually genuinely disconnected from, like, socioeconomic reality. Like, often it, it is the people... The people that are most strongly drawing on images of British traditionalism and continuity and nostalgia yeah. are often the very same people arguing for like rapid and transformative change. Yeah. You know, whether it's like Thatcher invoking, you know, Victorian values and British tradition while, you know, hollowing out the state, you know, at a time of like financialization and rapid technological change, or like, you know, whether it's like our current government, um, you, you know, like what, like what, what tra genuinely, what traditions are they in favour of other yeah. than statues of slave traders? Like, you know, whenever, like, for example, whenever bishops criticise their policies, they're perfectly happy to, like, attack the Church of England, you know, <laughs> clearly like a traditional yeah. British institution. They're happy to do the same yeah. thing with British universities, with yeah. the civil service. Like, they're actually, like, not in favour <laughs> of keeping... The Any National Trust. Actual is traces. Woke. Yeah. The Royal, yeah. The Royal uh, National, what, whatever, Lifeboat Institute, uh, too woke for, for wanting to do its job of saving people in the sea. Um, yeah, yeah, now they can face life sentences for, 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 for saving people drowning, crossing the, the channel. Um, because that's, that's woke, apparently. It's not British. Incredible stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean... Um, Especially, I mean, coming back to the question of statues as well, obviously. Um, I mean, the, the the tradition of these statues as well is... I mean, in, in the case of, like, Confederate statues in the US, for example, I mean, a lot of these statues were erected long after the Civil War. Yeah. They were, they were erected to remind black people of their place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were these big fuck-off statues that were, that were built um, to commemorate these yeah. Civil War generals of the Confederacy... Um, well, the I mean, the Edward Colston statue was, was put up in very similar circumstances. Yeah, it's like it's like yeah. a late nineteenth century statue. Like the context in yeah. which it was erected was, you know, Britain was having an enormous panic about imperial decline. I mean, you know, actually, like the British Empire, like hadn't yet quite reached its height, but yeah. you know, there was like anxiety over um, like the economic rise of like Germany and America, like the scramble for Africa yeah. was like undermining British complacency. 
about like being able to rule the entire globe unopposed like you know like it, it the context in which like slave traders were being celebrated was like inspiring pioneers that those like people yeah. in charge like the ruling elite was like consciously saying to people like hey like follow these people's example in expanding and defending an empire yeah no definitely and um and and this this uh vision of britain i mean um throughout history i mean both as this colonial power uh, but also as this plucky underdog at the same mm. time um you know both as like the anglo-saxon invaders and as the the the, the celts who are defending yeah. from them uh you know simultaneously um like it's kind of led like that 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 was obviously the like the backbone of the whole brexit project as you know has been mentioned before i mean it's, on the one hand britain has the power to exist outside of the european union and it is still this world power geopolitically it just needs to reclaim its position you know mm. at the top of the food chain um but at the same time it's also this plucky underdog which is facing brussels bureaucracy and the and the machine of the globalist elite mm. um and you know i mean this this you know analysis has been has been done obviously before but i mean i think something interesting that you mentioned yourself as well was the the, the nostalgia that i think a lot of the remainers we're also uh, suffering from. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of that, I think, is um, is seen in the, well, not just the 2012 Olympic ceremony itself, but but in particular the way that it is remembered by a certain commentary yeah. class today. Oh, um, when, do you remember when everything was uh, great in 2012 when we all came together? <laughs> like, and everyone just forgets it was like a year after, like, Riots, the riots in London cities across <laughs> England, like the middle of austerity, when like you know Osborne was booed when he went to take his seat in the stands. It's it's really astonishing to me because I wasn't living here at the time. I was still in uni and I was mm. in the Netherlands for uni. And I, I, I mean, my dad was living in London, so I you know come here during my summer holidays and stuff. And I was in London and I lived just up the road from where the riots started, and um, it was. I, I ended up writing my bachelor thesis about the riots as well. I mean, I, yeah. it, it was quite a, I would say, quite a formative experience for me at the time as well, uh, just because of how how insane it felt, you know, like yeah. it, it just in those days, um, how quickly it felt like everything was like on the verge of like really, really breaking down. Yeah. Um, and it happened so close down the road from me. And I mean, like streets that i've known growing up like look like war zones and mm. um it was it was genuinely pretty shocking and so that's why you know i mean even though i wasn't living here at the time obviously and i and i and i you know i was predicting that you know in the lead up to the 2012, mm. 2012 olympics um there would be even worse violence on the streets because um you know of heightened security on the streets and you know, we saw in the lead up to it as well, and G4S getting contracts to like yeah. run basically like private security paramilitary yeah. like groups essentially like within within London. Um, but uh, and do you remember somehow... and do you remember as well like the kind of mood of like intense fear and anxiety that Britain, that there was that there was going to be some like terrible act of terrorism. Yeah, that like that like that like that the security services were unprepared to meet. Like I like I really feel like 
the opening ceremony just kind of like knocked a lot of memory because I think people felt such relief. Like, it, I mean, it was an amazing ceremony, like objectively, like I'm not being snarky about it. But I think the fact that it was such a success, everyone just forgot how terrified and pessimistic like Britain had been at a national level before the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, once again, like like you said, this was like two years after the student protest as well. And, mm. you know, when Occupy was happening and, you know, it really felt like, you know, like the, the Arab Spring is happening, like, um, like just a year before that. And like there's uh, it really feels like the whole world is in this in this, uh, you know, process of upheaval, you know, from, you know, older mm. political structures. Um and yeah. I mean, 2016 yeah, I mean, certainly put that all into perspective. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely right. But uh, but yeah, I mean, 2011. I think 2011 in particular. I think people forget just like how insane everything felt at that yeah. time. Um, and and so yeah, I mean, it, it is it is quite bizarre to me. I mean, maybe maybe it, it does make a lot of sense as well. And now we're at the sort of the, the ten year anniversary of the the London Olympics as well, right? So it's it's um, it's pretty fascinating to see sort of how that has been remembered and and how that's been sort of become the symbol of yeah. um, of, of a sort of normality before and, and the BBC you know, the cracks really started to show. Yeah, and the BBC rerun it during the first lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> I mean, what else, What more sort of nostalgia comfort food is there than that, mm. right? Um, but yeah, yeah, I am keeping an eye on the time and I feel like this is one of those topics that we could probably talk about uh, for, for many hours longer. But, <laughs> but I feel like we, we, we probably do have to uh, wrap things up at a certain point. Um, I guess, I mean, in conclusion, do you have any sort of concluding um ideas of thoughts uh from this discussion yeah i mean i do like what i what i want to do is make a bid for changing our minds about history being good <laughs> that i like i like i feel like there is this unchallenged narrative in the media at the moment that on the one side like there are two sides to the culture war I think we're, it is an argument we're being presented with, that on the one hand, people want to feel good about their national history. They want to remember empire as being like broadly a force for good. They want to remember when Britain abolished slavery, but not when Britain created the transatlantic slave trade, etc. And on the other side, we're being encouraged to kind of just see that as like, oh, younger generations kind of, you know, tearing down the idols of old generations. And it's like, it is framed as like quite a negative thing. You know, even, even often the people arguing for a reckoning with British history present it as like, you know, like a kind of like, just, there's, I don't know how to phrase this. Like, I think there's sometimes like a lack of understanding that people that like it kind of goes quite deep for a lot of people emotionally that yeah. i think a lot yeah. of old generations in particular feel like they are being told that they're wrong and that it's not okay to be wrong and that mm -hmm. they feel kind of like someone saying they should be embarrassed and ashamed and you know they don't want to have to deal with those feelings and on the other hand you know the prime minister is literally saying you don't have to feel those feelings you can feel great 
and I just kind of as a historian want to say that like actually I think it could probably feel quite exciting to change your mind and find out that like things aren't as simple as we were first told but like that doesn't have to yeah. feel like an existential threat like it can be like you know it can be exciting like historians are constantly changing our minds like every historian has always rewritten history like that's the nature of the profession um and yeah the sky the sky will not fall down no absolutely and i, and I uh, you know while that's that's totally correct i think it's also very important for you know the average person who's also not a historian to also constantly be challenging the, the versions of history that they know and that they remember and to try to sort of disentangle um you know the the personal from the factual yeah. sometimes you know because i mean even though that that might not be as clear cut as uh as as i say you know but i think it's important sometimes we do tend to kind of uh overlap those things uh, and and sometimes that process happens sort of um unconsciously so i think it's important for us to kind of try to be aware of these things and yeah. uh and, and be challenging yeah like what what we know about history at, at all times as well um but yeah i mean this has been a, an absolute pleasure a, a really really great chat fascinating conversation um, oh thank you for having me and, i've had a great uh, yeah, the, time yeah no definitely and uh, the, the book's really great as well do you want to do you want to just say something say anything about it or plug where people might be able to get it or any other plugs or shout outs before we go i mean yeah it's called rule nostalgia a backwards history of britain um available from from all good bookshops and you should definitely go out and buy it now <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely and where can people find you on social media um oh i'm on twitter for far too much of the time um i'm at <laughs> hannah rosewoods brilliant nice and easy uh and um yeah no once again this has been uh yeah really really great i've really enjoyed it today and um as always i'm arjan at arjanistan on twitter we're at leftover pod on twitter and patreon.com forward slash leftover pod um yeah uh, so, uh, our patreon episodes are going to be coming out next week and the week after so do keep an eye out for that uh, and if you like what we do and want to help yeah please do it helps us a lot a massive thanks to our supporters as always of course a huge shout out to connor for production shout out to cardio for the music uh thanks to all of you for listening and we'll catch you all next time cheers